This is LifeSpeak, a podcast about well-being, mental health, and building resilience through knowledge. Here's Marianne Weisenthal. Alexandra Wyman was plunged into immense grief when in 2020, her husband, Sean, died by suicide, instantly leaving her a widow and a single parent. Today, the occupational therapist is an advocate and public speaker for resources on the aftermath of suicide. She hosts the Widows Club podcast, and she's the author of the book, The Suicide Club, What to Do When Someone You Love Chooses Death. Alexandra Wyman joins me today from Denver, Colorado. Welcome to the LifeSpeak podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm just so thrilled to be here today. I think before we get started, we just want to include a message for for those listening that we will be talking about suicide today. If this is something that you're finding difficult then and you're listening, please take breaks, get the support that you might need, and obviously turn it off if you feel that you need to. Alexandra, you say that the grief that a loved one experiences as a result of suicide is different than if your loved one died by accident or from illness. Can you talk about this? Yes. In my particular case, I knew what was happening about six hours before Sean actually passed. But for other individuals that I know who've lost a loved one, there's just no answer to the question why. We don't know. We don't get to go back. And I think when someone dies from a different method, be it an accident or from an illness, you kind of have that why. You have details that are involved in that that can give some sense of not necessarily rationale, but can give some sort of peace to the idea of, oh, this happened, other than my person was so upset that the last thing or the last choice it made, the only thing that they thought would end their pain was to die. And it's a very irrational situation that we try and rationalize. And it just leaves an individual, at least for myself in my grief process, absolutely bewildered. And trying to wrap your head around something that seems so senseless. I like how you say that there's no right or wrong way to grieve. Yeah, no. And I even, what's so interesting is I recently was at my actual suicide specific support group. And we were discussing just the different ways that people do grieve. And I think to avoid grief, to avoid those emotions is unhealthy, but it's still a way to grieve. And everyone has to have their own journey to get through it. And I always, I want to empower people to take those steps to work through what they're feeling and what they're going through because it's absolutely awful, but very much possible to get to the other side of those feelings. I mean, I myself in my own, like one individual grieving process have gone in so many different directions, whether I'm screaming at my steering wheel in my car, or I'm laughing until I start crying, or I'm exercising, or Maybe I'm journaling. I mean, there's so many different ways to kind of work through the grief process, but it is really individualized. I feel that so often we will project our own ideas of grief onto others rather than just let them decide. Some people are public grievers. Some people are private grievers. There's just a a whole gamut of of ways to go about it. And um, I think all of it is just right. You also call it unpredictable. Oh, the grief? Absolutely. There's no, I never thought in my... In my own experience, and and granted, Sean's death was probably the biggest and most shocking death that I had experienced in my life. I've I've known other people who have died, but I never thought I could experience that many emotions of a different variety in such a short span of time. 
And I mean, it made me feel very unstable and isolated to go, how can I be angry and have a little bit of joy and sad and hopeful? I mean, all of that can happen. And it did happen. It has several times in such a short period of time where it's like you're just on a roller coaster and you're getting emotional whiplash and don't know what direction you're going in. And absolutely, there's no way of knowing how long the process is going to be or what tools are going to work on what day at what time or when you're going to be hit with a grief burst or any any sort of thing can hit you at any point in time. And you just don't know when. We're going to talk a little bit more about this in a bit, but I, I just first of all, I want to ask, you know, as an advocate for, for loved ones, you've been working to debunk some common myths about suicide. What are some of those myths you're trying to debunk? Sure. I'd say one of the largest ones is actually to try and help people move away from blame and judgment and more to some compassion for individuals who die by suicide. It's not a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Usually this is stress that's compounded, at least in my experience, it's stress that's compounded in a variety of ways over a longer period of time. And it's not something that you can just get over. So that's definitely one of them. And I want to encourage people when you can shift your mindset away from our loss and what we're missing and put ourselves in the other person's shoes and to understand it's not easy to take your own life and to get to a point where you really feel that this is the last and only choice that you have a pretty big decision. And I feel that that's something that needs to be honored. The other one that I'd say that comes up the most is the question about signs and what signs there are to try and predict or prevent someone from dying by suicide. And I'll say in my experience and in the individuals I've met through my support group, there really aren't signs. We can look back in hindsight, of course, and say, well, maybe that was a sign or maybe that was a sign. And an individual could have those same behaviors and not die this way. So I think in that respect, sure, if someone is struggling and they're feeling stressed or if you feel that, you know, an individual may need additional support, it's not something to ignore. It's just that the frustrating part of this is there is no algorithm. There is no predictability to knowing who's going to die this way, who isn't. And that makes it feel very unsafe because no one wants to feel this horrible tragedy, you know, live through this tragedy, feel this trauma and feel this grief. For the the majority, I, I would say, of the experiences I've had, there really are no signs to predict when someone might end up ending their life this way. You talk about how if someone's truly determined to end their life, they're going to find a way to do it. And that intervention often happens too late. Can, can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. First, I want to say that with current prevention discussion really talks about finding hope and help for the individual who is contemplating suicide. And I think I definitely agree that that's very important. I think when someone gets to a point where they're actually deciding to end their life, I'm for trying to intervene as much as possible. So I want to make sure that's clear. I mean, I was even trying to intervene and get in touch with Sean before he died. I think when someone is that determined and they get to the point that they've already made that decision, sure, you can prolong their life. You could potentially get them hospitalized. You can try and get additional support. And sometimes that support might help. And sometimes that support is just prolonging the inevitable. And if that person is really resolute that this is what they want to do, then it's possible that that's what they're going to do. And with that, I feel that really, at least in the situation with Sean, he was never really taught healthy coping skills for how to handle what life hands us. 
we all have negative events that happen to us that impact us throughout our life. That's just life. You know, there can be amazing and joyous and wonderful events. And also there can be really hard, tragic events that happen to us. Um, And it doesn't necessarily have to be even tragic. It can just be something that negatively impacts us. And we all have something that happens. But it's how we handle those and having healthy coping skills to work through those events. And I don't think Sean was ever really taught that. So when he was experiencing higher amounts of stress and feeling that things were compounding, he didn't really have healthy ways to work through all of that. He just took it on and took it on and took it on until it felt unbearable. And so I truly believe that a lot of our prevention needs to start way early. And even with children and teaching them healthy coping skills and ways to embrace their emotions, the whole myriad of emotions that we have, that it's okay to have them and we can work through them and we can move on. And when something happens, that's really hard for us. We can get through it and here's how, and it'll change depending on the person. It'll change depending on the day, but to have that as more of our focus to try and help people have more of a healthier balance in their life so that when things do amp up and we all can trust ourselves that we can get through it. There are so many, as you mentioned earlier, unanswered questions when someone takes their own life and why they chose to do it. And and you say usually there are no clear answers. Do you feel like you got some answers about why Sean decided to do this? Do you think we need this, these answers to, to manage grief? That's such an interesting question because a long time ago, my sister and I were talking about just this thing. And I had said, well, when it's my time to go, I'm going to find him and I'm going to ask him. And she so quickly said, by the time you meet him again, you may not even care to know. And I thought that was so poignant. And I think I've created my own answers, trying to rationalize or have an understanding. I'll, I'll never completely know. But I think for me, what I have come down to is there was some very intense emotional and mental anguish that led to thinking the only way to end this pain was to end his life. And that's pretty much the synopsis of how I, (laughs) the only answer I really feel like I have. And I've definitely spent lots of time trying to intellectualize all of this. Was it our marriage? Was it his work? Was it, you know, what's the one little thing that tipped him over the edge? And, And I don't get to know that. And there may not have been one thing. It could have been a whole many things that happened. And that's, I think the hard part is being able to quiet those particular questions in relation to actually getting the specific answers. And for me, it brings me comfort to just say, he was in a lot of pain and this is how he ended his pain. And I'll, and I'll just say with that, you know, one of the things that I do have contemplated or thought about is, you know, in any other type of physical pain, and, I, and I've said this within the book and in other ways, if someone is dealing with cancer, I haven't really heard of anyone who, when they hear that someone wants to end their physical pain that says, oh no, you shouldn't do that. You just keep going. Or there's so much more compassion that comes with that. Like, of course you'd want to end your physical pain. It's awful what you're going through. And yet for individuals like Sean, who were definitely dealing with a different kind of pain that wasn't out there for everyone to see and wasn't tangible, then it's almost like, well, just pick yourself up by your bootstrap, like get over it. You know, you can just get over it and keep going. And just a little difference in that compassion even though I don't find that while the pain was different type of pain, it was still pain. You know, there's so much stigma around suicide and some are reluctant to tell others how their loved one dies. What was your experience with that? I knew from the beginning, I wanted to be honest and open. I can't, can't necessarily say why other than 
I just felt a drive that I knew that there was no shame knowing Sean. I was like, there's no shame in this and how he died, even though there were people involved in this situation who did carry that kind of shame and guilt around his death. I encourage people. I have heard lots of stories of people not feeling that they can talk about it. I did know people in this situation who I think there's one individual that it took them a year and a half to even say Sean's name. And I recognize that everyone has that that journey because I think that the stigma or the shame that comes with it is around we didn't save him, right? We've made it again about ourselves. We didn't save. We didn't save our person. We didn't get to them in time. Why didn't we know? Why couldn't we intervene and do something prior to getting to this point? And we take on that responsibility. And in my opinion, that's where you see a little bit more of that, that shame and guilt that comes along with it. But I, I'm a big proponent of people being able to talk about it because honestly, the more, I don't know if I'm a magnet now, but now I've met more people who've had loved ones die this way than I had ever met before. And I'm just so grateful that people are starting to feel more comfortable talking about it and being more open about it. You say in the book, the emotions the deceased felt before they died by suicide are very similar to those the living endure in the aftermath. What were some of the emotions that you experienced in those weeks and months after Sean took his own life? So, so many of them. The ones that kind of stuck out, there was definitely a feeling of the hopelessness and helplessness being in a situation. And I I mentioned earlier that this type of grief and this type of situation can feel very isolating. I would say people have a lot of opinions about death by suicide, even if they've never experienced it. And that to me can be a huge distraction. And so it could feel very isolating to to not be around people who just had an understanding or if I had to explain myself or what was going on, as well as just the life that I knew no longer existed. And what I was envisioning my life would become was gone in an instant. And it can create that helplessness and hopelessness of how am I ever going to get through this? How am I like, I, I was not expecting to be a single parent. I was not expecting to do this on my own. I don't even know if I can keep my house. I don't, you know, all these spiraling questions that come up of just what I call the business or just the day to day. Can I keep my job? How long can I have off? How does this even happen to be able to work in a state? I don't even know. How do you settle in a state? I didn't even know that I wasn't expecting to have to do anything. And that's something you do in your 80s. It's not something you do in your 30s. So that was definitely something that came up very quickly for me was definitely that feeling. I think not being a burden is one. And I had heard that from a therapist early on and it shared that she knew several other people who talked about when their loved ones were contemplating suicide, this idea of not being a burden. And that was something that came up very, very big for me. How can I ask for help? I don't even know what help I need. I need help. I don't know what help I need. And who can I ask to help? And to not be a burden on other people And that was something I had to work through as well and still do actually to this day of trying to figure out how to find help for the daily, daily things, even whether it's, you know, having a food service, having someone come help clean my house. If it's asking someone to babysit, these are all things that can come up. And those were kind of the two main ones I'd say that came up pretty quickly for me in the aftermath right after he died. You talk about anxiety a lot, which I thought was interesting because you don't think of anxiety as being something that is part of grief, but kind of makes sense. How did that play out for you? Multiple ways. Gosh, I had separation anxiety from my son. I was terrified that something was going to happen to him. I still to this day don't think I could handle if something happened to him. And of course, I have no control over that. And I do recognize that. 
I had anxiety, you know, around finances, what was going to happen. You know, we were a two income household. How am I going to do this as a single income household? Am I going to have to move? And that brings up all of these questions that are just open ended. And even when the dust settles, like my shock was around for about four months and then it lifted and you get a little bit of clarity of, okay, I need to start building routines. I need to start bridging that I'm grieving this massive thing. And also I have to take care of these day-to-day responsibilities. And the anxiety would come up because there were so many unknowns and death by suicide is a massive unknown. And so like, I'll tell people now, like I need to, I'm just trying to get my footing and they kind of laugh at me. Like no one ever really gets their footing, but even to have some semblance of being level footed in, in the way, because the way I envision it is literally, it's like when Sean died, what I felt like happened to my life was like a, like a sidewalk erupting or something where you just see cement particles everywhere. It's complete rubble. And you're just staring at this massive hole in the sidewalk. And that's how I felt my life had been. And, you know, when you're trying to walk over that pile of rubble, you're not going to be even footed. You're not going to be stable. And it's easy to fall over or whatever. And so the anxiety would come up around just trying to find something that would feel even grounded and secure because there really isn't much security in that aftermath. What are some of the strategies that you found helped you in the weeks and months and even today? Sure. It took me a while to really start to collect my strategies. I knew early on I had this idea that I could just blow through this grief thing, get to the other side, and I'd be good. It just doesn't work that way, unfortunately. And that was even its own lesson I had to learn. I read a lot of books on death, started looking at parenting, spirituality. I even started watching shows that covered how different people grieve or how different cultures view death and honor their loved ones. I would meditate, journal, exercise. I did have a doctor early on who told me that I needed to exercise. I did not have very kind words for him initially, but there is value in in exercise or just movement. Like forget the exercise, just move, just get your body moving. I cried. I screamed. I would punch a bag or if I didn't have a bag, like a, you know, workout bag, I'd punch my pillows. Anything that I could do to help work through the feelings. And I still engage in these not so much the screaming anymore. Every once in a while, I, I feel like I have to go in my basement and have a good scream. But really anything and anything that I could get my hands on to help me, even talking to friends, I have multiple therapists I work with. So anytime that I feel like something's coming up, I try and engage in one of my strategies. And I will say, I also have had to just embrace the strategy I just dislike the most. And that is a little bit of time. You know, there's that saying, time heals all wounds. And I'll say, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that because I think you have to match time with a strategy, but there is a component of two. You can't rush your grief. You can't just force it. You have to let it naturally take its course. And that does involve that, that period of time and letting things kind of sink in, which is not necessarily my favorite part. You, you mentioned before we started recording that support groups have been helpful to you. Yes, absolutely. My sister very quickly found a local support group that was suicide specific. I do recommend finding, you know, if you're going through any type of grief from a major loss to find a support group where the individuals have lost loved ones in a similar way, because there's just this level of unity and understanding that you can't get anywhere else. 
Sean and I were very affectionate. We loved hugging. We'd hold hands when we'd go out and be walking around. And after he died, I wanted nothing to do with that. And for months, people would be like, can I hug you? And I'd say, no, no, thanks for the sentiment. No. And then the first time I was able, since it's all happened during COVID, a lot of my support group meetings were virtual. And then when we were actually in person for the first time, one of the leaders came up to me and she said, I have been waiting so long just to give you a hug. And I let her, I don't know why, but I let her. And it was the first time I thought, oh, okay, I can do this. Like I can embrace and receive this kind of comfort that I couldn't before. But there's just something about support groups, I think, that provides a different level of support than others who haven't gone through the same thing you have that they can, they can provide for you. Do you think it's important to find a specific kind of therapist? Okay. So my first answer would be yes, only because I think there are wonderful therapists out there who don't necessarily have to have a specialty who can provide the kind of support you need. But I feel like you also have to vet the therapist because I have known individuals who've gone to therapists who have had that mindset of, well, we're just going to help you get over it. And and that to me just rubs me the wrong way and has rubbed my friends who've tried these therapists. I ended up finding a therapist who does who specializes in grief. And that's been really helpful for me because he comes to the sessions with an understanding of what I'm going through. Some days I need kid gloves. Some days I need the get your stuff together talk. And he's able to read that situation off of what I'm going through and where I am in my grief process. And it could just be that he's such a great therapist and can do that. I think the grief component does help with that specialty. So I know that's not necessarily a straightforward answer, but all I would say is bet whoever you go to. Like you don't, just because you find someone doesn't mean you need to stick with them. And do you think that everybody needs to see a therapist when they've gone through a suicide? That's such a good question. Normally I would say not necessarily, but I actually do. I think there's value in being able to work through all of the tumultuous questions. It's so easy to snowball and spiral with the questions you get after loss by suicide. And and I've said a few of them, but like, what part did I play? What if I had done this instead? What if he had just answered the phone? What if I had all of those what ifs? And they can be completely debilitating. And friends can help, but but I just think it's a different type of relationship you can have with a therapist when you can kind of word vomit all of that out and they can help you weed through it. How did you perceive suicide before you went through this? It's just so confusing to people to understand why somebody would choose to take their own life. You had a confrontation with somebody, it wasn't really a confrontation, but a conversation when you when you went in to the to get your driver's license renewed. And can you talk about that? Yes, I just chuckled at the thought of of that lovely lady. And I can admit, you know, I I knew of two people who died by suicide before Sean did or had heard of other people. And I did. I I fully thought, kind of had that mentality of, why can't you just get over it? There are so many resources out there. Why can't you just go get a therapist? You know, the go take a pill, go, go get a therapist, go for a walk. It's just, I definitely aligned with the permanent solution to a temporary problem. And boy, did I get handed not even just humble pie. I feel like I got like a humble bakery on that one because it's so not not true at all. And uh, the DMV, <laughs> the, the DMV uh, story 
that you mentioned was a woman. I was trying to just briefly, I was trying to change the registration on my vehicle and I had to hand her the death certificate and she didn't realize it was suicide until she was asking me about why I was there, what happened. And then I got trapped because she decided to tell me how she had never met anyone who ended up dying by suicide, didn't know anyone, but boy, did she have some opinions and she was going to let me know about them. And I normally was, I was trying to become empowered to walk away from people who did that because she was not the first, definitely not the last, but she was holding onto my registration and the death certificate. And I just didn't know how to pull those. I like literally was trying to figure out how I could push my hand like underneath the window and pull them back so I could just walk away. So I let her have, have her rant and I, you know, had to calm myself down after and Honestly, in a way, I have to thank that woman because she definitely, that experience helped encourage me to say, we have got to change how people view this and let people, empower people to talk about it more so we can change those ideas about people who die this way. Is that why you decided to write the book? Well, that was more, I didn't know anyone who had gone through something like this and I didn't have as much of the support outside of my family for how to navigate this. And I decided that if I could soften the blow or the experience of someone else going through this by writing down the notes and things that helped me, that would make it worth it. Because really what I was hoping is maybe suicide would end with Sean's death and it didn't as much as I would have liked it to. It's like maybe maybe his is just it. Like he's the last person who's ever going to die by suicide and no one ever has to go through this pain again. They go through other pain, but not pain by this type of death. Very irrational thought. But uh, I mean, three weeks after he died, someone called and said, hey, I have a friend whose husband died by suicide. Can you talk to them? But I, I realized, okay, if I can't end this type of death, then maybe, maybe I can bring comfort to someone else who has to go through this or help walk them through it. Because I was promised, at least in the county where I live, I was promise that there'd be someone to walk me through it. And that didn't happen. So I thought maybe by writing this book, the book and I could help other people walk through it. Do you feel that, you know, I guess it's been about three years since Sean died. Do you feel you've found some peace and understanding? How are you doing now? Oh, thank you for asking. It comes and goes. There are some days I feel that I have peace and understanding. There are other days probably more recently, because as you said, we are coming up on his three-year anniversary, where I feel like I have absolutely no understanding. And I still have some peace and I'm starting to trust myself more that I can do this by myself. I can figure this out and not by myself, really, because you can't. I have a village. I have a very wonderful curated village that I have now, but that I can figure things out. But there are days where I, you know, sit there and talk to him and I'm like, why did you do this? Like, this wasn't our plan. We were just planning vacations before you <laughs> before you died. We had talked about all sorts of things and the excitement and potentially having another kid and watching our son grow up. And it's still part of that journey. And, and as much as, as I mentioned, I wish that there was some end to this journey. It just, it changes. And so sometimes things that hit me hard one day won't hit me that hard the next day. And, and then other things will. And that's the unpredictability that still exists there. But I would say overall, I feel that I am in a much better place and feel that I am definitely more hopeful that I can really embrace whatever life is left for me to do and and be able to keep putting one foot in front of the other. 
Well, you answered what I was about to ask you, which is what what keeps you feeling hopeful and optimistic? Yeah, well, the, yes, being able to plan or think, you know, I never for a long time, even now, sometimes I'm like, I don't know if I should really plan to do anything. But being able to do that, um, definitely seeing the growth that my son has and watching his milestones, he's really been the anchor. If he was not here, I don't know. I don't honestly know that I would be. And being able to have something to latch onto for this life is really what keeps me going. And I think also this situation has really pushed me in my own spirituality. And in doing so, that has helped me to find a sense of peace and the encouragement to keep going. Your book is called The Suicide Club, What to Do When Someone You Love Chooses Death. Alexandra Wyman, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Oh, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. For more about this episode, go to lifespeak.com slash podcast.